Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Stan Grant, one of Australia's most widely respected and admired journalists, to Books, 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 to talk about his new book, With the Falling of the Dusk, published by HarperCollins. Before we start, I'd like to introduce Stan properly. Professor Stan Grant is a Wiradjuri and Kamilaroi man. He's been a journalist since 1987 and has worked for the ABC, SBS, The Seven Network and Sky News, amongst others. From 2001 to 2012, he worked for CNN as their senior international correspondent in Asia and the Middle East. He's won many awards for his journalism, including in 2015, a Walkley for his coverage of Indigenous affairs and a Walkley Book Award for his best-selling book, Talking to My Country. Stan is currently the International Affairs Analyst at the ABC and the Chair of Australian Indigenous Belonging at Charles Sturt University. With the Falling of the Dusk is Stan's fourth book. Stan, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Hi, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Great yeah. to have you here today. I'm going to start by asking you to tell us what With the Falling of the Dusk is about. The title itself comes from um, the, the German philosopher Hegel, who's a bit of a, um, a, a, you know, a, bit of a guide for me through the sort of journey into the world and, and what's led us to this point. And, it, you know, he famously said that the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only with the falling of the dusk, that we gain wisdom with the nightfall, that we can see where we have been. Hegel was, was, was of the belief that there is an arc of, of history that, that bends towards freedom and that it is that quest for freedom that is the engine that drives history. And various people have interpreted that in various ways. You know, Marx was a devotee. Um, Stalin saw, of course, in the Stalinist state the the ultimate freedom. Um, Hitler, as well, um, saw with the Nazis and the the Third Reich, of course, as the ultimate state. Um, Mao had studied Hegel, and of course, Francis Fukuyama in 1989, um, the conservative political scientist from the US, declared the falling of the Berlin Wall as the end of history, a Hegelian idea, and we reach an end point of history. So I, I, I was always attracted to that idea as a guide, as a looking at what has led us to this point, this point where I think we can say that where there is a dusk descending on the world, there is so much uncertainty in the world, there is talk of war in the air again and big power rivalry. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to explore that dividing line, that fault line between the West and its ideas of progress its ideas of a linear history with those people who are not of the West, including myself as an Aboriginal person, Mm. who come to the West often through colonisation and empire, who live with the hard legacy of Western imperialism, um, and to explore that dividing line of history and how that factors 
into what I see as a real hinge point of history in our world today. Stan, in the prologue, you say that you've always lived a restless life, always mm. wandering, and, and you have indeed lived all over the world, in London, Hong mm. Kong, Beijing, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, amongst others. You said something really interesting. You said, wandering is the happiness of the anxious soul. Yeah. What did you mean by that? That I find contentment in wandering, you know, that I like the journey, that there is a restlessness and an anxiety, I think, in my own life that comes from my own insecure place in the world. You know, I was born into an Aboriginal family, Wiradjuri Gumbleroy family, living in on the margins of Australian society, um, desperately poor, black, marginalised, uh, locked out. And my childhood was spent on the road looking for a place to belong, moving from town to town. You know, I changed schools at least 13 or 14 times before I was even into high school. Mm. Um, we would pack up and move at a moment's notice. If Dad got a job somewhere else, we lived in the back of cars in tents and caravans in sawmill shacks. There was no continuity to my education. There was no permanence to my home. My home was the road. My education was lived experience. Books that I devoured and those long journeys that we took. Um, and, and I think that that is, that is for me where a true home exists. It is in the intellectual journey, the wandering, um, the search, and not the destination. And I think, again, that's a, a different way of approaching the world to a Western linear idea of the world that is always arriving, is always looking for the final end point. For me, the destination, the wandering, is the happiness of that anxious, restless soul. Mm. You, you talk in your previous book, Talking to My Country, and you mention it again here, that when you were 15, you were hauled into the principal's office along mm. with other Indigenous boys and told that you, you shouldn't waste anybody anybody's time by yeah. staying at school any longer. I mean, that was just extraordinary. What was your reaction to that? Did that did that really spur you on to think, I'm going to prove you wrong? I know your family moved no. to Canberra after that. Yeah. I, look, I've been blessed in so many ways, really, that um, at certain times in my life, things have intervened or I've taken a particular direction that has opened doors and that has led me to new horizons. And and that was one of them. I mean, I, I'm the 14, 15-year-old Aboriginal kid who's had a sporadic education at best, um, poor, living on the fringes of small country towns in New South Wales. I'm not thinking about the future. I'm not thinking about university. I'm not thinking about travelling the world. I'm just thinking about my mates, my family, playing football, um, all the things that, you know, my peers were thinking about and doing. And, of course, there was no place for us in that society. There was no expectation of us. We were the kids put at the back of the class. We were the kids put in the dumb classes. We were the kids that nothing was expected of. And, of course, we got to 15. There was The principal said, there is, there is no future for you here. He even offered that you know, they may be able to help us find a job, you know, picking fruit or maybe an apprenticeship at best or working in a sawmill or, um, and, and that probably would have been my fate. There was nothing in my life to say that I would stand up to that or that I would challenge that idea or that that would spur me on to any greater heights. It was just that at that particular moment, my dad got a job working in a sawmill outside of Canberra. 
and we moved. And a lot of my cousins and my friends who were with me that day, who left school, um, sadly, their lives um, often hit a brick wall. You know, they, they, there are stories of, of jail. There are stories of drug and alcohol abuse, unemployment and hopelessness. Um, several of them are dead. Um, and that could very easily have been my fate. It took a different direction. And the move to Canberra, which was hard, I was no longer around my own people, my own family. My sister and I were the only Aboriginal kids in the school. Mm. Canberra was the whitest of all white places. Um, but but it opened another door that I was able to walk through and fundamentally changed the traje- trajectory of my life. And you met someone who lit the spark, didn't you? You'd finished school and you were working yeah. as a male boy and you weren't really sure what was going to happen next. Tell us about who you met yeah. and what that person had on you. Look, I was very happy delivering the mail at the Institute of Aboriginal Studies. Um, my uncle was the janitor there uh, and, and my cousin was working in Aboriginal employment, um, they would, you know, as an employment officer, they would find uh, potential positions that were available for Aboriginal kids. And there was a job going, again, one of these fortuitous moments, there was a job going at the Institute of Aboriginal Studies in Canberra as a mail boy. So I would deliver the mail in the morning, I'd do photocopying in the afternoon, I'd hang out with my uncle and have lunch with him. He'd tell me all these fantastic stories every lunchtime. I'd play football on the weekend. Um, hang out with my mates, and life was good. And then one day, Marcia Langton, who is known to many Australians now as a significant Indigenous voice and, and a professor of Indigenous studies at uh, Melbourne University, and a remarkable, remarkable lady who was studying at that point for a PhD at, um, at ANU, and she was working as a research officer at the Institute of Aboriginal Studies, which was a uh, a place uh, where, you know, a, a study of all things to do with Indigenous society. And she pulled me aside one day in the library and she said, what are you doing with your life? Your family have not sacrificed, have not worked hard. Your people have not struggled for you to deliver mail. And she really read me the riot act. And she said, you know, you have a responsibility. You need to do something. You've finished school. You've done that for a reason. You know, go to university. What do you want to do? What are your dreams? And, you know, I talked to her about my love of reading and I, I had a passion for reading. Um, and, and, and I was a smart kid. I, I, I didn't have opportunities going to school. But when I finally settled down at school, I did really well in my last couple of years of high school. Um, I learned really quickly. I just had no, no um, roadmap. You know, there was nothing to guide me. Marcia whipped me into shape and, filled out the application forms for me to go to university and sort of, you know, corralled me into that and has been a, an ongoing mentor and guide in my life ever since. And if it wasn't for that moment, there is no way I'd be sitting here talking to you today. Stan, you've said in, in the book, and it's, it's very obvious, frankly, from your 30-plus year career in journalism, that journalism was really the perfect job for you. Yeah. When did you? When did it first occur to you that that is something that you could do and that you wanted to do? And why has it been such a good fit for you? Um, first of all, you know, I, I loved reading, and I loved writing, and I loved stories, and I grew up amongst storytellers. My my great grandfather was known as the storyteller of the Wiradjuri people. That's what he did. He moved from mission to mission in Aboriginal communities, and he would tell these incredible stories, keeping our culture and our stories alive. My mother 
uh, was a, is a poet and she used to write poetry and short stories. And I'd sit with her and she'd just spin me these fantastic tales of growing up of her life and the miraculous things that happened, ghosts and, you know, incredible stories. Um, and so I always had that love of storytelling and, and I was a voracious reader. Um, and, and I suppose that journalism just made sense the moment I walked into a newsroom, the minute I was set out on a story. I had an innate ability to do this. I knew how to tell stories. Um, I had a curiosity about the world. And I had a fearlessness uh, and, and, and a risk taker. And I was a risk taker because I had never grown up with security. I didn't fear failure because I didn't really know success. Um, I didn't fear something new because my life had been a succession of change and new things. I was resourceful because I had to be growing up. Um, you know, all of those things um, really uh, prepared me for that, that career. And the moment I walked in there, it was a, it was a perfect fit. I love being around those ideas, these irascible people these irreverent people. Not to say it wasn't hard. There was a lot of racism. You know, mm. racist comments were thrown around like confetti. You know, the greatest uh, compliment someone could be paid when I came into journalism was if you did something well, they would say, good on you, you're a white man. Like that was, to be a white man was the highest possible thing you could aspire to. We're, talk we're talking the late 1980s here, aren't we? Oh, early, early 80s, that's right, early to mid-80s. And I was the only Aboriginal person in the newsroom. And in fact, I was the only person of colour in the newsroom. There was no one but me. I'd dealt with this before. I'd dealt with this growing up. I, 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 I'd got white people's measure. I knew what they were about. I knew what they thought of us. This didn't come as anything shocking or new to me. And, you know, I had to make a decision then. Were these people going to destroy me? Were they going to rob me of my future? Or was I going to outlast them? And, you know, fundamentally, I believed I was better than them. <laughs> I knew I could do this job better than them. I knew that I would work harder, that I would be smarter, that I would get in earlier, that I would leave later. Um, I, you know... I, I had overcome more than they had in their lives. These, you know, these these white kids who had been to the best schools and had an armchair ride through university. If you know, there was no way in the world they were going to get the better of me. So I, I, I said, I'll focus on the long game. I'll ignore the racist taunts. I'll ignore all of that stuff. I will focus on being good at what I can, at you know, control what I can. Um, and 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 that's what happened. And then within journalism. There were people who who saw something in me, people who took a step towards me, fantastic mentors who have been with me throughout my entire career, people like Kerry O'Brien, um, who's been an ongoing influence and mentor in my life, people who would come into my life um, and see something in me, see a spark of something and 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 stand by me and give me that support. So it was it was endurance, it was resilience, it was picking my battles and then looking for those people who would who would support me. And let's come now to how you open the book. It's 2009 and you and your family have moved, you're about to make the big move from Hong Kong to Beijing when you have landed the job as CNN's Chinese correspondent. And in the prologue you write quite lyrically about 
the train journey that took you into China yeah. on Christmas Day and what you saw, a man that you saw in the field. And you said something really interesting. You looked out, you saw sparseness, you saw loneliness, and you perceived a type of sadness. And you said, I could see myself there. I shared the sadness of this land. What was the sadness of China that you saw and why was it that you felt you could relate to it? Yeah, it was 2004. No, we'd been in Hong Kong for several years, um, from 2000, 2001 to 2004. And then we were moving to Beijing. And, and you're right, I decided that we would get the train rather than fly for several reasons. One is that I've been acutely aware as an Aboriginal person that the journey, again, to come back to that wandering is the happiness of the anxious soul, I enjoyed the journey. I wanted to feel as if the place would open up to me. I do it no matter where I am, even if it's going for a walk or sitting in a park or going to a coffee shop or going to a bookstore. I want to feel the, the place surrounding me. I want, to, I want to let that place into me. And I said to my wife and kids, let's, let's get this train. It's an overnight train journey. It'll be 14 hours. We'll, we'll wake up on Christmas Day in China and we'll have this sense of the country opening up to us. And I remember waking on that Christmas morning and looking out the window. My wife is still asleep and smearing the condensation off the glass and looking out at this hard land. The frost was packed on the ground. In the distance, there was a, an old Buddhist pagoda. The trees were stripped of their tree of, the, of their leaves. And um, there was a lone figure working in a field. And he was working the land with a horse-drawn plough, just as his ancestors would always have done. And, and it really captured something for me. I felt the deep history of that land. I felt the pull of that land. I felt as if that man and I were connected because we were twinned with fate. We were twinned with history. He had seen history unfold in his lifetime. He'd seen war, revolution, famine. And now he was seeing China opening up again to, to the world and the world coming to China. I had come from a people who were invaded, colonised, marginalised, excluded. And here I was moving into the world to report the world and our lives coming together at that moment in this place. And the sadness of the country spoke to the depth of that history. I feel the sadness of countries profoundly. Australia is a profoundly sad country because of the unresolved history, the darkness of our past. There is so much blood in the ground in China that it is a deeply sad place. History hangs very heavily there. And unlike the West, where history is something to be catalogued, it's something to be written down, it's something to be commemorated and moved on from. For us, for that man, for me, history lived in our bones. And that's what I felt. That's what I felt in that country, that history was alive and eternal in me and in this man working his field on a hard, frosty Christmas morning. So that's in the prologue to the book and you refer back several times as you talk about the history of China, which we'll come to, and why that resonated with you as an Indigenous person given the history of your people in this country. Towards the end of the book, you make the point, you, you emphasise that your people, Indigenous Australians and oppressed people everywhere, 
have faced a violence so extreme that it's threatened your very existence and yet we've survived, you say. So you talk about how in the West, yes, there have been these terrible world wars, yes, there have been cataclysmic events, but nothing quite like the existential threat that's faced by Indigenous people or by oppressed people in different countries. And I was wondering if it was your own history and the history of your people that has really been the driver behind your your desire to tell the story of oppressed people the world over? It's something in me, Nicole. It's, you know, there's this wonderful line that Franz Fanon, the, the, the black writer and psychiatrist, had said once. He said, oh, my body, it makes me a man who asks questions. And, and I think I'm born into a world to ask questions. My very existence demands that I ask questions. I don't exist unless I can prove that I exist. You know, the old Cartesian line about, um, you know, I think, therefore, I am. For people outside of the West, I think, therefore, I must prove I am. I must prove I exist. Because we are being looked at and judged through another lens. You know, one of the things about the West and the idea of Western modernity is that it means that to be white in the world, is to not question your existence. Your existence is a given. And yes, there have been terrible wars and conflicts fought over who rules the West. What, what power? How do we organize our societies? You know, whether it's Nazism, whether it's the Soviets, Marxism, liberalism, all of these things that are contesting power. But they are all products of a Western view of the world, an Enlightenment view of the world a quest for freedom, however it's defined, that can just as easily lead to tyranny. But the West is centred, and to live in the West as a white European person means that you don't have to ask those questions, whatever other questions you you may need to ask. The fundamental fact of your existence is a given. For us, it is not. That's why Ralph Ellison wrote The Invisible Man. That's why... James Baldwin said when he went to to France, I don't want to be a Negro, let alone a Negro writer. Not that I won't be black, but I won't be your idea of black. It's why James Joyce and, and, and Irish people share this with us because they also are people who carry a deep history in their bones. It's why James Joyce says, I go in search of the unconstructed conscience of my race to ask those questions about what it is to live in the world when you enter the world looking to be seen, to be made visible with all of that uncertainty. So the questions that I asked of myself, the questions that I asked looking out the window, we travelled from town to town as a boy, the questions I asked about our poverty, about our blackness, about the way people saw us, are the same questions I asked in China or Afghanistan or Iraq or Northern Ireland or North Korea or South Africa or any of the dozens of places that I've reported from where I've looked for those stories that in some way try to answer that question about myself. What is it to be alive and to live free in a world where your freedom was contested and your very existence needs to be verified, where you need to prove that you exist? Let's focus now on COVID-19 and discuss the impact that's had on you and your thinking. Mm. You write that you've been deeply troubled by the events of the past year, in particular 
the degree to which all of us have willingly traded freedom for security. You write about the fact, as we all appreciate, that lockdown and other um, measures restricting our freedom have clearly been necessary. But mm. you are very concerned at the prospect of a descent into tyranny. You're very concerned at the fragility of democracy and, and how easily it can descend into tyranny. And you worry that what we may be seeing now is the end of democracy. And you said in coronavirus, tyranny may have found the perfect host. Could you talk to us about that? Well, coronavirus has both revealed these pent-up issues in our world, revealed the fault lines of our world between universalism, cosmopolitanism, globalism and nationalism. One of our main uh, sources of defence against coronavirus has been our borders to shut ourselves down, to lock ourselves down, to stop people coming in. That is antithetical to what is a pluralist, liberal, universalist idea. We've had to surrender our freedom um, to beat this virus, which again is antithetical to the idea of democracy, which is apparently founded on ideas of of freedom. Um, Of course, we know that freedom is heavily heavily qualified and contingent and very much contested, but fundamentally that's the promise of democracy. Um, And yes, we have responsibilities to each other and our ability to put aside our freedom or our own desires for a common good is also a test and a measure of our societies. But why I made that comment particularly about coronavirus being a potential host for an even greater virus, the virus of tyranny, is because throughout history, that's what viruses tell us. You know, the fear of the virus lives deeply within us. Viruses have killed more of humanity than our wars have. And when I looked into this even further, when you look at tyrants, when you look at people who seek to divide us, who seek to commit appalling atrocities on our fellow human beings, how often they use the language of viruses Mm. and the fear of the virus. So Hitler talked about the virus of the Jews, you know, that that the Holocaust was a surgical procedure. You know, Stalin talked about the production of human beings being more important than the production of tanks. And then then Molotov, uh, his his foreign secretary, talks about um, having to, to shut people away people who challenged the idea of the Soviet state because they would spread disease. The Chinese talk about the Uyghurs as having an illness. Donald Trump talked about the Mexicans bringing disease. There is a connection between our fear of disease and illness and and, and tyranny and and the way that, that the language of viruses is used to justify or inspire tyranny. We also know that throughout history, viruses have changed the way that we live. You know, that the the modern prison, the panopticon, the all-seeing eye, emerged out of measures to deal with the plague, to isolate people, to take them out of society, to lock them away, to keep an eye on them. You know, um, Albert Camus wrote the plague as an allegory of tyranny and, and how we turn on each other when we are in fear. And, and while, as I say, while I absolutely accept that as free, willing, thinking, caring, compassionate human beings, 
we can, for a period, surrender our own freedom for a common good. We must always be vigilant about where those lines are drawn and how easily surrendering freedom means that you don't get it back and it opens the door to an even more frightening virus, and that is the virus of tyranny. And I think that this moment raises all of those questions. And the fact that the virus came out of China, an authoritarian regime, I think puts that front and centre. In what way, Stan? What's the, because, what's the significance of the fact that it came out of China? Because of the way that an authoritarian regime can deal with an emergency. You know, Carl Schmitt, the German jurist and philosopher and Nazi member, said once that liberal democracy struggles to deal with emergencies. It, mm. it, it can't deal with the exception because of our inherent freedom and the checks and balances of our government. And he looked then at, at, at Soviet Russia, born out of revolution, born out of emergency, where authoritarianism and the strong hand of the state can crush all to deal with whatever is thrown at it. And you look at China's response to COVID, we all became China to some degree. Mm. We looked at China in those early stages and we said, look at China. They're shutting down a whole city. They're dragging people out of their homes. They're locking people behind doors. Oh, my God, how can this happen? And we had to do the same thing. China emerges out of coronavirus, um, very successfully handled, with its economy open, booming, its society open, while the great bastion of democracy, the United States, is laid low. You know, millions of people killed, millions, tens of millions of people affected. Um, its own governance failing, its own systems of government failing, its promise of democracy failing. In the midst of, of, of the Trump era, which is, which is a, 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 an administration that had exploited fear and anxiety, that had traded in lies, that had torn at the fabric of America's promise of democracy. All of these things have been revealed by coronavirus, and it accelerates those changes and delivers us to this moment. So I think it is significant beyond just the health emergency. Bernard-Henri Levy, the French philosopher, says, a pandemic is a social phenomenon with a medical aspect, and it is a social phenomenon. Mm. It is a political phenomenon. It is an economic phenomenon. It touches us as humans, even beyond the impact of the virus itself. Not, you know, historically, when you look at the people in the world, even with the, sh the terrible number of deaths, a lot, most people are not going to die. 98% of people are not going to die from getting coronavirus. And yet it has revealed and accelerated issues in our society that resonate far beyond the impact on our own individual person health. It's exposed these questions about how we live. One of the other points that you make is the significance of fear. As you say, 98% of us hopefully won't get COVID, but 100% of us will fear or will yeah. have that fear. And you write about the significance as fear, as a driver for change. Yeah, and, you know, that's where tyranny breeds in fear. It, 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 it exploits fear and anxiety, and often not without good reason. You know, Donald Trump did not come to power for no reason. There were people in America who felt left out, excluded. He was able to touch on that anxiety, fear, resentment, racism, all of those things that we know 
are so easily exploited when people feel abandoned. You know, Hitler came to power in, in, in Nazi Germany not by overtaking the country but by being elected because people lived with the humiliation of World War I. They'd seen their country ravaged. They, they'd seen their economy collapse um, and they turned on other people. He gave them an enemy. He, he, he exploited their fear and their anxiety. And, and you know, that's how, that's how tyranny takes root. It takes root through fear and anxiety. Stan, I wanted to ask you about that. One of the points that you make and that other people have made is that in some sense, something that we need to be very alert to is that the period of time that we're going through now is not dissimilar from what happened in the 1930s and in particular mm. the 1930s in Germany and how that humiliation as a result of the loss in World War I was really what drove the, um, the rise of Hitler and his ability to take power in the way that he did. To what extent do you think we are seeing um, or to what extent do you think the times that we're living through now have a parallel in the 1930s in Germany? I think you could probably go back even further than that. You could probably go back to the lead-up to First World War in 1914, where, again, you saw the, the, the plates shifting. We'd come out of the great peace, the long period of peace. Um, we were living in a much more globalised world. Um, it was the midst of an economic boom. Um, Germany and the UK were each other's biggest trading partners. The Kaiser and the King were cousins. People said war could not happen, and it did. The rising power of Germany, the waning power to a degree of the United Kingdom led to this catastrophic conflict. And then that tipped us into a period of unending conflict in our people. That goes from 1914 right through to 1945. Perhaps even you could say from 1914 through to 1949, which was the end of the communist revolution, before we finally see a new world emerging, a world of American dominance, a world of Cold War standoff with the Soviets, the emergence of a communist China, um, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, all of those things that bring us to the point that we're at now. And I think where we're at now is analogous to that 1914 to 1945 period, that there are so many moving parts, rising power China, waning power, potentially, the United States, increasing strength of authoritarianism while democracy is being eroded, the rise of populist and fascist tendencies within democratic regimes themselves. And you talk um, about Austria and Hungary, Turkey. Aust Austria, Hungary, Turkey, the Philippines, Brazil, Russia, you know, ostensibly democracies that can be hijacked by strongmen, by autocrats. Um, we see economic collapse. We see a blowback against immigration. We see increasing racism. Um, all of these touchstones that were alive during that period. And, of course, now we have quite open talk from very, very senior levels of government about the prospect of war between the United States and China, a war that would engulf the world and a war that, once it starts, would more than likely be a nuclear war. I mean, that's what we're talking about. And now it's no longer unthinkable. Now it is no longer unsaid. It is said. It is thinkable. We are preparing for that eventuality. God forbid that it happens, but we are preparing for just that possibility. 
We're going to come in a moment to talk a little bit more about China. There were just a couple of other things I wanted to ask you about first. In the chapter where you talk, that early chapter where you talk about tyranny and the threat of it and the fragility of democracy, you said something that I I did want you to explain that I, I found interesting. You said that humans are weak, can easily bend to tyranny, and then you said more than that, we are drawn to it. Some part of us craves the certainty that tyranny brings. What did you mean by that? I've seen this all over the world. You know, the things that we will acquiesce to, the things that we will accept, the untold um, horrors that we will allow in our own societies to protect ourselves. And and I wonder if that is not something that is innate. I wonder as that as as human beings spread from the the African savanna to populate the rest of the world over two hundred thousand plus years. That as we move from place to place and we encounter new people, that we met them with fear and often hostility, and that we were prepared to acquiesce to the worst crimes of humanity if it meant our own survival, and that we look for those people who answer those questions. You know, the, the fundamental questions of philosophy that I'm drawn to are the questions of how we govern our societies. What are natural rights and where do natural rights um, conflict with society's demands of us, of political rights? Who has the right to have rights, as Hannah Arendt once, once said? You know, uh, Thomas Hobbes, the world is, is nasty, brutish and short, um, you know, and that we need a leviathan to govern us, to give order to the world. Now, whether that's liberal democracy or whether that's Nazism or Marxism or whatever it may be, the ability to order our world and our acquiescence to that. And, you know, it's the it's the knock on the door in, in 1936, 37, 38 in Germany and the stormtroopers ask if you have Jews in the attic and the answer will depend on whether you live or die. What do you do? Do you acquiesce to that tyranny and surrender other people to their fate? Because that's precisely what people did. People who loved their children, people who tucked their kids in at night, who paid their taxes, people who would not think of harming another human being were prepared to acquiesce to a mass extermination of people. In Australia, we don't talk still about the genocide of First Nations people. We try to explain it away. We try to turn it into a numbers game. We try to measure percentages. We try to, you know, to, to talk our way through the worst aspects of our history rather than being accountable to our history. In Australia, a country that is among the richest, most democratic, stable, secure countries on earth, we are happy to live, very comfortable to live in a country where Aboriginal people die 10 years younger where 3% of the population are a third of the prison population who have the worst health, housing, employment statistics in the world, in, in Australia, the highest imprisonment statistics in the world, horrifying rates of mental illness and suicide. And what do we really do about it? What do we actually demand? Or are we just happy to go to the beach? Are we happy to do the right thing, pay our taxes, buy our houses, invest in property, do all of those things and call ourselves good people while we allow these untold atrocities to happen in our own midst where First Nations people who had their land stolen, um, other people who suffer the most in our own society. 
we are prepared to push those things to the back of our minds when it is our own security. And on a personal level, I've seen people who are prepared to willingly enlist in the slaughter of others um, and bend to that security, tyranny, if it means their own security. Mm. And, 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 and it's something I struggle with. It's a, you know, I'm, I am as susceptible to it as anybody else. And I struggle with the question of, is that who we are fundamentally? Are we people who trade our freedom for security? Or are we prepared to stand against tyranny in the cause of freedom? And very few people I've seen in society are prepared to do that. Stan, let's come to look at what the American political scientist Francis Fukuyama said. After 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, the Soviet empire crumbled, he said that we have reached the end of history. Mm. And that's something that you come back to time and time again in this book. You challenge that. You ask us, you ask yourself, is this true? Have we reached the end of history? First of all, could you just explain to us what did he mean by that? What was he actually saying? He meant that with the falling of the Berlin Wall and then subsequent to that the collapse of the Soviet Empire, that liberal democracy had now emerged triumphant, that it was the only ideology left in the ring, and that all of us were on a journey to liberal freedom. That's what he believed. Um, and at that point in 89, 1991, it was very easy to believe that. You know, the Soviet empire was collapsing. The Cold War was over. Bill Clinton was warning in 1992, warning the Chinese that you are on the wrong side of history. The Communist Party with China will collapse just as the Soviet empire was collapsing. And, we, you know, this was the crowning of the sort of great democratic project, 300 years of Western modernity, delivering us to this point of absolute freedom. And that's what Fukuyama believed. Humanity had achieved the ultimate goal. The ultimate yeah, goal the was liberal goal. democracy and freedom, and that had been achieved. So that was the end and, of history. And that this was the natural order of things. And, of course, what we've seen subsequent to that, it is not the natural order of things. In 1989, when the war was coming down, Deng Xiaoping was also ordering the Communist Party, PLA Army, to, you know, the PLA to, to shoot its own people. And, and look, at, look at the 30 years after that. We've seen the War of the Balkans. We've seen the genocide of Rwanda. We've seen the rise of China. We've seen the war of Iraq and Afghanistan, the rise of Islamist terrorism with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, um, the Taliban. Um, we've seen a, a, an ongoing erosion of democracy and a waning America and a collapse of the belief of the American dream, the Trump years. I mean, all of those things have happened. So it was not the end of history. And, and Fukuyama, to his credit, did say, when, once you get beyond the headlines, he did say that the end of history may just be enough to get history started again because what liberalism fails to deliver, and I say this as someone who, who would call himself a liberal but not an uncritical one, not someone who just accepts as given the shibboleths of universal liberalism and freedom as it is defined by the West, but someone who believes in what Jacques Derrida once called the liberalism to come what liberalism could be. Um, you know, I, I, I don't say this to, to denigrate it, but, but liberalism fails to deal with that impulse in us to belong, for identity. Liberalism evens things out. It, it, it builds 
you know, justice emerges from a neutrality. And yet there is no view from nowhere. We do carry our histories with us. Identity does matter. And I think if there's one thing we've seen post-1989 is the return of identity, both within the West and outside the West. You argue that we're seeing a rise of tribalism and the politics of identity and what you call toxic identity. And you say at a later point that when identity shrinks to its very essence, when when each of us is defined by one thing only, whether it's our race, our colour, our gender, our religion, that is when we are primed to kill. That is when mm. this concept of identity becomes fatal. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, this is what history tells us. When Captain James Cook, so assured of his identity as a white British man, can plant a flag in a, in a ground and claim an entire continent and extinguish the rights of a people who have been here for 80 to 100,000 years at least and consign those people today to still ongoing suffering, that's identity. You know, when, when um, Hutu and Tutsi slaughter each other, that's identity. When Shia and Sunni slaughter each other, or Hindu and Muslim, the partition of India, you know, North Korea versus South Korea, these things, these identity wars are deeply rooted within us when we claim the superiority to others. And it's antithetical to the human condition. The idea that you can be reduced to an essence, whiteness, blackness, class, race, nationalism, any of these things that, of course, we know don't truly exist, that we are so much more complex and complicated than that. And yet we seek the certainty of identity rather than the uncertainty of becoming, of change. We want to shrink ourselves into our boxes. We want to fight from our own corners. And we're seeing this increasingly today. And, and even in, mo in movements that are justified, movements against injustice, they carry within them the seed of their own tyranny, where you can turn on other people, where, you know, the French Revolution that begins in a, a quest for fraternity, egalité, you know, um, this, this idea of, of, of freedom um, morphs into the terror. How easily these movements of liberation can become movements of tyranny. You know, Albert Camus once said that every claim for justice is an invitation to hate. And I've seen this all around the world. And I, I come to this with my own identity question. I read that quote and I've been thinking about it. Is that because what he's saying, that any any um, any aspirations towards revenge mean that you are only firing up hatred in the blood of the of the blood of the oppressed. What, what what he's saying here is that even out of a great injustice, tyranny can emerge. Where someone can say, you owe me, which is what you did to me. Mm. And out of that can emerge its own tyranny of not seeking justice, but seeking revenge, or trying to impose on your own people a particular way of seeing the world or an order. I mean, look at China. China says to the West, you humiliated us. They live with the hundred years of humiliation. That's the narrative of Chinese identity, foreign powers dominating them, and how easily that can turn to the tyranny of the Communist Party um, that controls its own people, that, that bends its own people to its will. 
you know, it, it, this is something we have to be very vigilant about. And I say this again as a as an Aboriginal person who is of mixed heritage. I struggle with my own history and my own identity. What am I? Who am I? Um, which side am I on? Why do I have to be on any side? Yes, I come out of a history of injustice, but does that demand vengeance and resentment? Does my identity have to all forever be linked to an historical wound? Am I the man of resentment, as Nietzsche would have said? And if that is all I am, if I am looking to locate myself in a narrative of historical grievance around ideas of racial separation, of blackness versus whiteness, then you end up with what Amartya Sen, the Indian philosopher and economist, once said, solitarist identities. And he said solitarist identities kill and they kill with abandon. And I have seen that. And if anyone doesn't believe that, they have not been paying attention to our world. When you shrink things to their essence, when you claim the identity above all, then you end up with the gulag and the gas chamber. You know, Hitler said in Mein Kampf about the German people, they would rather the ideology without rival than the promise of liberal freedom, the identity above the freedom. And look where that leads. Let's look now at China. You, you say that we're at a hinge point of history right now, and as you said a bit earlier, that we are clearly we are clearly now at a time when there is a very real prospect of war between China and the United States. And you go back to something that you witnessed, and that was the British handover of Hong Kong mm-hmm. to China on the 30th of June 1997. Could you just talk a bit about what you saw and why you now regard that moment as such a pivotal pivotal one for world history, so much so that you say, if our worst fears are realised, that night set us on a course for war. Tell us what you saw and why it was so significant. Well, you know, you think about 1997, um, we're seeing Hong Kong handed back to mainland China from Britain. Hong Kong was a scar on the Chinese soul. It was a symbol of the humiliation of the Opium Wars, the hundred years of humiliation that China had suffered at the hands of foreign powers. And it marked the return of China as a great power, that it was taking back what was theirs. Um, If 1989 was the end of history as Fukuyama saw it, 1997 could be said to be the return of history because everything we have seen subsequent to that has been the ongoing power, growing power of the Chinese Communist Party to the point now where it crushes dissent in Hong Kong itself, um, where it emerges as an authoritarian rival to liberal democracies, where an authoritarian country, um, for the first time in 300 years, is soon to be the biggest economy in the world. It is saying that freedom is not necessary to be rich. And, and, we've, and that goes against everything that modernity has told us, everything that Western liberalism believes to be true. And it's all captured there on that night. And on that night, I, I was reporting, I'd been in at Hong Kong uh, in, in the city around Victoria Harbour uh, and reporting live from there. It was a horrendous night, monsoonal rain. And I said to my cameraman when I came off air at about 9 o'clock, let's get out of here. This is where everyone else is. And again, this is my sort of risk-taking journalistic nature. Let's go 
where no one else is. And I got a, a, a cab and I told him to take us up to the border of the new territories uh, where the Chinese mainland meets Hong Kong. And we're driving up this dark, winding road up through the hills in this driving, battering rain. And suddenly he's, he's listening to the radio and he could hear this broadcast over the radio. He pulled over the side of the road and he said, out, out, out. We got out in the rain and suddenly I heard the rumbling of the trucks and I saw the lights in the distance. And then this line of Chinese troops, armoured personnel carriers, trucks, these soldiers who were hand-picked for this mission, all standing erect on the back of these vehicles and just one after another going past me in the driving rain. And I was broadcasting. And as I turned and looked over my shoulder, they were saluting me as they went by. These people that were so incredibly trained and disciplined, and they were on this mission to reclaim what was theirs. And I think you look back at that and you realise that that is a moment when the world turns and delivers us to this moment when we fear the prospect of war with China, um, where a rising power meets a waning power and the potential for conflict to emerge from that. And all of that was, was there, captured. I think, on that night. Stan, as a journalist based in China, you make the point that you were always aware that you were being watched, that you were being monitored. Could you tell us about the reminder of that that you received in the very early days when you took your family ice skating? Yeah, we'd only been there a couple of uh, weeks, actually. It was the middle of winter and we went into the frozen lakes in the centre of Beijing where they'd open it up for ice skating for families my wife and I were on one side of the rink and our eldest son was pushing our two younger boys on a, one of those sleds around the ice. And I looked up and I saw these two men approach them dressed in black and they suddenly grabbed my oldest son and flung him across the, the ice and took off at great speed with the two younger ones. As I chased after them, they turned the sled on its side and sent my young kids sprawling across the ice. I chased up after them and they jumped across the fence into a car and they sped away. And, you know, I got to know what Chinese secret police looked like in the coming years. You know, the, the way they walked, how they looked, the, the black outfits they often wear. And this was a warning. This was them saying, we know who you are. We know who you work for. And we can get to your family at any time that we choose. And it was something, you know, it, was a, it, it brought me up short. I was in a, a different country an authoritarian country where to be a foreign journalist, particularly working for an organisation as powerful and as uh, as high profile as CNN and so American as CNN, made me an enemy of the state. Stan, in the decade after the September 11 attacks leading up to the killing of bin Laden and you write at length about those events, you covered those, you were there uh, in you were there in Afghanistan shortly after, immediately after the killing of bin Laden. You say or you write in your book that journalism didn't answer all of your mm. questions, that you, you needed more. You became obsessed with philosophy. And you quote in this book many philosophers, in, in particular the German philosopher Georg Hegel, who you've referred to. What did you learn from philosophy that you could not learn from journalism and how did it or did it in fact help you to understand the world as events were unfolding? It makes me ask better questions. It's a flashlight into the darkness. It tells us where we have been. It's about the contest of ideas. Our world is a world built on ideas. We have fought up the world that we live in. 
modernity emerged out of the 17th, 18th century explosion of ideas that challenged the natural order of things, that challenged the church, challenged the aristocracy, challenged the ideas of what it is to be a human being, what it was to have rights. It invented a new way of being, democracy, liberalism, um, capitalism. And I needed to understand these things. It wasn't enough to go and report. Journalism was great as a as an immediate response, as a as a you know, as a real live, live, real time response to events. But what put us there? What led me there with all of my history? What makes someone strap on a vest and blow themselves up? Why does America believe that it has almost a divine right to rule, that it is the exceptional nation. What is it about liberal democracy that believes it is the end point of humanity's struggle? What is it to live on the other side of the West? All of these questions were sort of swirling in me, and there was no way that journalism could answer that. Philosophy was a way of joining the dots. It was an argument with myself. It was an argument with those great thinkers. It was challenging myself. It was asking me to ask harder questions. It was throwing off certainty for uncertainty. And I prefer uncertainty. I prefer the question rather than the answer. The next answer should always lead to the next question and the next question and the question after that. And that's what philosophy gives me. And I think philosophy and poetry capture something about the essence of our struggle to be human, to be alive, something about our soul. There is no way that journalism can do that. And it informed my journalism. It made me a better storyteller. It made me more empathetic. It made me look beyond the certainties of journalism, the sort of conflict-based model of journalism that thinks there is this side and that side, you know, and, and, and through reporting those sides, you get balance. Well, the world isn't balanced. Um, the world is not objective. Um, and and uh, and and philosophy was a window onto that world that just it consumes me really. It's all I really want to read about. Stan, you've mentioned poetry as well, which was also something I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. You quote from Shakespeare, you quote from W. B. Yeats, amongst yeah. others, as well as other poets from other um, countries and nationalities. What does poetry give you? It, it, in a way, philosophy asks me, uh, speaks to my mind. Poetry speaks to my soul and my heart. And the great poets have been to the other side. They've gone into the dark forest. They've asked those questions for us and they've come back with something for us. There is wisdom there. There is love there. There is, in the beauty of those words, and great poetry can capture the world in a drop of water, you know, there's a beautiful poem that I love by Ivan Turgenev, the Russian poet, and, and it's a, a prose poem. And he talks about going out one, one evening, the falling of the dusk, actually, and he looks at the storm clouds in the distance and he feels this world around him and feels the sense of being isolated and alone in that world. And then he sees this fluttering that looks like a white handkerchief and it's a, a pigeon, a white pigeon flying across the sky, set against the dark clouds. And then moments later, he sees the pigeon return with its mate, and the two of the pigeons fly across the dark sky. 
and he watches them as they settle and they they tussle in against each other. And it is the essence of contentment. And he says that in that moment, he too feels content, even though he knows that he is alone. He's always alone. And I think for me, that speaks to the beauty of the world of poetry, that we are always alone. We are alone. We come into this world and we go out of this world and we are alone. But we can also find ourselves in each other and in the beauty of two birds in a dark sky. And that's what I look for in poetry. It's those people who can touch those eternal things, those transcendent things that speak to my soul and give me something to live for. Stan, final question. You feel, obviously, great despair at where we are right now in world history, but the book is not full of despair, although it tells terrible stories of oppression. We, We haven't had the time to talk about them today, but this is a book where you write about your experiences in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in North Korea. You write America, about American politics. You write mm. about the rise of Bin Laden. You deal with so many contemporary international and political issues. But my sense is that although you do feel despair, you still retain hope and draw strength from people who never stop believing in freedom. And you write about how what you're doing is telling the story of survivors. And I really like, in particular, a story that you shared from the Russian dissident, and please excuse me if I don't pronounce his name correctly, but Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Mm. You tell a lovely story about mm. him. Could you just share that story yeah. with us and and tell us what can we learn from him and from what he yeah. said? You know, you, you're right. Um, we can see despair all around us, and sometimes hope itself is not enough. Um, hope can be... Um, hope, hope can be a mirage. Courage is what we require in the face of tyranny. Mandela's like courage. Dietrich Bonhoeffer like courage. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. courage. Uh, and and I, 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 I'm attracted to this story by Solzhenitsyn because it captures two things that I think redeem us, which is our courage, but beyond that, our love. And it is love. I think that ultimately redeems us and is what tyrants hate. They want to crush our love. It's what identity can never capture. It can never capture love. And there's this wonderful story in the Gulag Archipelago out of a chapter entitled First Cell, First Love about Solzhenitsyn when he set out to the Gulag and he's sent to solitary confinement and he emerges after several weeks that he's sent into his first cell in the Gulag. And they'd open the door and he sees these three bedraggled figures in the corner huddled together. And he said in that moment, he'd forgotten, they looked up at him and they smiled at him and he'd forgotten what a smile looked like. And the very first thing they said to him was, are you from freedom? Are you from freedom? What a thing to say, that you can lock people away, that you can strip things from them, that you can try to impose an orthodoxy, an identity on them, and that these people, when everything is taken, they still seek freedom. And he said in that cell, he learned what it was to love, to truly love your fellow human being in the face of tyranny, 
and to never surrender to that tyranny. Those three faces and that question, are you from freedom? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we from freedom? And once you commit yourself to that, you can't allow tyranny in any of its forms to stand. Stan, thank you so very much for speaking with me today on Books, Books, Books. It's been an absolute pleasure. The book is wonderful. Congratulations and good luck and enjoy uh, talking about it. And thank you so much for being here today. Absolutely pleasure. It's, it's beautiful to have these conversations. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.